Hello and welcome to the Unstoppable Joy Podcast, your roadmap to a joy-filled life. I'm your host, Catherine McAdam. I'm a nurse practitioner, single mom, worship leader, and a Christian minister who has also experienced the heartache of a marriage to a drug addict, divorce, and homelessness. Most of all, I'm an overcomer who can completely understand what you're going through and speak life into your situation. It is my desire to bring hope and encouragement that you too can live a life of unstoppable joy no matter what life hands you. I'm not here to give you pat answers and cliche scripture verses. I'm here to honestly share with you the mindset hurdles and the spiritual and emotional barriers I had to overcome on my journey to becoming a comeback queen. I believe as I share my story and those of my guests, you too will be able to find your unstoppable joy. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite beverage, and let's get started. So I want to welcome to the Unstoppable Joy podcast, my nephew. Don't tell everyone else he's my favorite nephew. And (laughs) um. He is also a physician. He is a addiction specialist, and I have invited him here to our podcast to just talk about addiction. It's a big part of what I talk about um, on the Unstoppable Joy podcast, and a lot of my story has to do with being married to someone who's addicted. And my nephew, Michael Cates, is a specialist in addiction, and I've had the privilege of talking to him about this recently, and I just wanted to kind of pick his brain today about addiction and how to help people that loved ones that you have that might find themselves addicted. So welcome, Mike. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's, you know, interesting. Um, A lot of people, they ask, have you had much experience with addiction personally? And your story is actually one of the stories that frequently comes to mind as one of the ways that I have witnessed how addiction really can impact families and some of the ways that it really transforms our lives. And so I'm excited to be here and chat with you about this. I'm kind of obsessed with it and would you talk about it uh, for lots of time. So excited to have the opportunity to chat with you about it today. Yeah. So, you know, addiction is a big, like you said, a big part of my story. And um, I just know how uh, gut-wrenching it was to to be mm-hmm. married to someone that was fighting addiction and, you know, that hope of them getting better. And um, why do you think that people end up going down that road of addiction? What draws people into this? Yeah, it's, it's you know, so part of what I do as an addiction medicine doctor is looking at what we refer to as a disease model of addiction, that addiction is a disease and kind of moving away kind of a traditional view that somebody who has an addiction that there is, uh, that they're a bad person or that there's, uh, there's some sort of moral failing. Kind of the, the disease model of addiction says that this is a disease just like high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, and so in, so in exactly the same way that those things are influenced by multiple factors, addiction is, is really influenced by multiple factors. So you know, just in the same way that diabetes and high blood pressure can run in families, uh, addiction can run in families. So there is a genetic component, but that is also difficult to pull apart the genetics from environment, right? That That is it the genes themselves or is it the environment that kind of accompany those genes? Um, 
And so there's a lot of, you know, so there's looking at there's nature, but there's also nurture and those things do kind of uh, combine uh, together. Really, one of the biggest things that we look at with with addiction is is what is frequently childhood trauma, some sort of childhood trauma. I would recommend people take a look at the ACEs study um, out of uh, California. Basically, um, we've learned that childhood trauma is incredibly predictive of of addiction. There, there's some studies that suggest that trauma is more predictive of substance use disorder than diabetes is that the diabetes is predicted by obesity. Um, so it's very complicated. Um, but you know, one of the biggest things that I kind of delve into when, with, when I work with my patients is, uh, childhood trauma. And one of the things that, you know, with, through that ACEs study, one of the things that was identified is having family members who have a substance use disorder. And then frequently things like having family members be incarcerated, stuff like that has high, uh, is highly correlated with substance use disorder, as well as some other mental health, um, as well as physical health issues. So yeah, so there's, you know, so it's kind of like what goes into addiction. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like any, any disease process, it's a lot of factors playing into a, a lot of things. Like you said, like diabetes, it's not just you know, are you overweight? It's what is your your genetic makeup? And, um, you know, are you uh, sedentary? And are, you know, a lot of things go into that. But so how do you think that we like my listeners, if they have someone in their life that is addicted, what is the the best thing that they can do to help that person find the help that they need? Yeah. So one thing that if you have somebody that you think might have a substance use disorder, the first thing that I would recommend doing is look up a local Al-Anon meeting. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever had if you ever had any interaction with Al-Anon in your journey, but basically the idea of Al-Anon is it's kind of a sister group to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, as it, it's a group that really exists out there uh, for people who uh, who love someone with an addiction, and um, and there's a lot of correlation between substance use disorder as well as codependence and things like that, which you know, isn't a medical definition. Codependence is not a medical one, but I think where it should be, especially in the world of addiction. And so that's a really good organization because it really seeks to, to help people who love people with substance use disorder. One of the problems with substance use disorder is it has a, you know, so if, if you have diabetes, you know, that is going to impact your family in that, you know, maybe you guys don't have that Dairy Queen cake every year for your birthday, right? That, that, you know, maybe there are going to be some changes with diet and exercise and, but with substance use disorder, it has a, a tendency to kind of eat everybody around it, except for that person. And so one of two things frequently happen, um, with people with substance use disorder is the substance use disorder hurts the people all around that person. Um, and then frequently what then happens is that person is just completely isolated from those uh, who love them. But what can also happen is you can also have people get in like a very codependent relationship where that person is almost addicted to helping that person with a problem. And so Al-Anon is really good as an organization because it really helps people to 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 figure out 
what are the things that I can do to help my loved one? But then what are the things that I can do to help myself so that I don't end up sacrificing myself on the altar of, of trying to help this person? And it really helps you to navigate, you know, where is the line between, where's the line between I am going to help this person uh, and I'm going to stay with them to the ends of the earth, which is a really, really good idea in concept. Uh, but then the challenge is, let's say you have children, right? I, I'm going to love with this, love this person and stay with them to the point that it's hurting my children and putting them at risk for substance use disorder or trauma. And so it can be really, really challenging to navigate that. And there's, there's not, it's a really difficult question and it really depends on the person. It can be really hard to, to, to know where is that line between, uh, between do I continue helping this person or where's the point at which, you know, I need to walk away, you know, kind of in the same way that, you know, Catherine, you're a lifeguard, right? You know, you were taught that, if you see somebody drowning, there's a way that you can save them where mm -hmm. you aren't also drowning. Because mm -hmm. what you don't want to do is you have some one person drowning on the beach. The only person than one person drowning at the beach is two people drowning at the beach. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be much more, much more difficult. So it can be really difficult to kind of figure out, you know, where that line is. And again, that's where groups like Al-Anon can be, can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was one of the biggest um, frustrations for me was, you know, as a Christian, I didn't want to get divorced. I wanted to, you know, help my husband and get get him healthy. But at the same time, I didn't want to be enabling him. And in the end, I, you know, I had to like have what, you know, people talk about tough love and and be like, you know, you have to make these changes and stop endangering our family or we have to go. And um, so it's, it is really hard. And, and it's like you said, it's very individual because you, you can't just give a blanket answer of this is how you're going to deal with everybody um, in every situation. But what resources are there out there for the person that's addicted and um, how do you find a good one? Um, that's a great, it's a great question. It's so there's, this is a major problem in that. Um, so if you have a heart attack and you go to any hospital in the United States, you walk in the room, they're going to give you baby aspirin. They're going to put an EKG on you. They're going to check for cardiac enzymes. They're going to call the cardiologist who get the cath lab. The problem with substance use disorder is that does not exist. If you have a substance use disorder and you walk into every hospital in the United States, if you walk into a hospital in Boulder, Colorado, you're actually probably going to get really, really good compassionate care. If you walk into one in, let's say, rural, in the rural South, um, you're probably going to get told to um, call up Alcoholics Anonymous or go to church, which those are both great things. But, you know, if somebody came into the, came into the hospital having a heart attack, we wouldn't say, oh, you need to go to uh, Overeaters Anonymous because your, your heart attack was caused by overeating. And so that's, it's a really, it's a major challenge. So that's part of what, 
my job as an addiction medicine doctor is trying to build these systems that where so that when somebody asks for help, um, they they can get it. And so the challenge is, I would say, you know, if you have a doctor or a therapist or or somebody that you trust, I would tell them that you're struggling and ask for resources. The real challenge is that is that in a lot of places there just aren't those resources. And so that's what I'm doing in rural Michigan is I'm trying to build to be that resource in that community. So when somebody goes into any doctor's office in, in that they can be referred to me and they can be given those resources that, you know, the challenges is, is it just is in some communities, it just doesn't exist. But I would just say, start, you know, asking people. Um, and I think that especially if you ask doctors, a doctor, a provider, your primary provider. Um, if you have a therapist, ask them. If you live in the state of Michigan, um, there, I work for the Michigan Opioid Collaborative. If you look them up online, we have a database of all the providers who are doing medications for substance use disorder. The SAMHSA, which is the government, the Substance and Mental Health Organization, they have a website where you can look up in your area and see if there's anybody who does addiction medicine. Um, and, and that's important because the addiction, kind of my job as an addiction medicine doctor is, so I, I kind of say I can't help people if they're dead. And if somebody has a, an opiate use disorder and they're getting opioids off the street, there's actually a lot of them that are laced with fentanyl. You don't know what you're getting. And so my job is how do I get you safe? How do I get you where you're not needing to uh, elicit drugs off the street? And then if you do, you're going to be safe. You'll get you Narcan so you don't overdose. But then once once I have you in a safe place physically, then that's kind of where that work uh, emotionally, where that kind of comes in. I I tell people that I think we kind of have this idea that that um that you know sitting in a circle and singing kumbaya is what we need to do to treat our substance use disorder and that might be true but we need to make sure that people are alive and that they are you know uh, not actively withdrawing which can be dangerous for a lot of people so really getting through that that first part is going to be really helpful and then that's kind of where then uh that longer term work of rebuilding relationships with your family um, building those skills that you need to get a job or many of those things that are eroded over years of being involved with, with substance use. So it can be, it's, you know, so it's really hard, Catherine. I wish I had like a great, like one, like call X, Y, or Z or do this thing, but it's really difficult and it's even challenging just different churches. You know, I know that, you know, that a lot of your, you know, you're kind of coming at this from a Christian perspective. There's a lot of churches that are going to view substance use disorder as a moral failing, that it's a sin that you need to pray it away or, and, and that's going to be really difficult too. But there's other churches where I, I have a couple, um, works with some churches who are, have, are great at getting people in to see me. And so it's, it's really difficult because, you know, some pastors, some clergy members are probably going to be doing a really good job of getting people connected with resources, but other others might actually do more harm than good. And so it's, it's a really challenging uh, question to answer. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I just, I've been talking on the podcast last week's episode. Um, I mean, this will probably be out in a couple more weeks, but um, was about the Jesus that I know um, because there's so much spiritual abuse in the church mm-hmm. and there's so much um, people that claim to be Christians that, that are just way, way off um, and, and not showing the love of Christ and not showing that compassion. I mean, Jesus was the one that, um, you know, people were bringing people like the lady that supposedly was caught in adultery. They bring this lady to him thinking that, oh, yeah, he's going to be all on board with us stoning her. And he's like, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He was like, you're all sinners. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, give this lady some grace. Let's, you know, what can we do to, you know, bring her back into the fold and offer healing and forgiveness? Where was the guy that she was caught with? You know, it's just like this double standard. Um, so we have that on one hand, and then we have all these Christians that are in the church that are afraid to even say that they're struggling with anything mm-hmm. because yep. of worried yep. about being labeled as an outcast and, yep. and being pushed out of community because they are, are honest about what their feelings are and what they're struggling with. My heart is for people that anybody, any walk of life, whether, you know, you've got struggling with addiction, pornography, you know obesity, whatever it is that, that we all deal with, that we're all struggling with it. Our relationship with Christ is a relationship. It's not based on perfection. It's, it's progress. That's what Jesus calls us to is, is to be loving and to be real and, and not yeah. this, this facade of, you know, I've got it all together and anybody that steps out of line, out of line you know, here's the big hammer of, um, of judgment and correction, you know, right. and that's what, you know, that's what was really hard for me going through everything with my ex is just, I wanted him to get healing and mm-hmm. health. And, you know, we, we, we went through medical detox. We went through method right. treatment. We went through, um, you know, prayer with our church. We, we kind of, we went through counseling and, you know, kind of all the avenues, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, to have him go back to it and, and yeah. then in the end become, you know, violent with me because I was trying to keep him from yeah. going out and using again. And, yeah. um, you know, it just, it was, you know, it's, it's heart wrenching. And when you care yeah. about somebody, you know, and you're on the other end, like you want them to get that healing, but they will, mm-hmm. they will bury you. Like you said, mm-hmm. they will chip you away and bury you and, and bury your whole family with them. And so like having the courage to love them from afar and walk away in, in, in having that support of like Al-Anon is huge. Um, I didn't, I didn't end up getting into Al-Anon, but I, you know, I had your parents that were incredibly supportive to me. Um, so Mike, his, his mom is, is my sister, Jenny, and her um, husband is Tom. Had both them on this podcast as well. And they were the ones that took us in, um, when we had no other place to go. Um, and we were fleeing that whole situation and, um, both of them were such huge, um, helps and, and so instrumental in in my finding freedom and, and helping me with my kids. And I mean, the whole family was just a wreck. Um, I mean, we, we talk about it now, we kind of giggle about it, you know, how Elijah was just um, wearing a shower curtain running yeah. down the street. <laughs> yeah. He was throwing the fit and he, you know, we were, we were, you know, he wrapped himself up in a shower curtain that was in the car as we were like fleeing. And, um, he was kicking everybody He had his little green Crocs on. He was kicking everybody in the shins and, you know, just angry and, and not understanding what was happening and his whole world was crumbling. And, um, yeah, so 
to find, you know, to be able to find hope and help. And, um, you know, it, it, there's no just one answer. And that and that's what's so difficult about what you do, Mike, is it's not just, oh, we're going to put you through this program. And when you get to the end of it, all your problems are going to be solved. We're going to have uncovered all of this baggage and all this trauma and everything's going to be just fine. Um, people go back. Um, yeah. e even when they even when they've had some success, they end up going back back to it. Um, <laughs> and it is it's it's a disease. You know, I I, I believe there's obviously um, not only is it there like it's multifaceted there. I think there is, you know, not only physical and psychosocial and mental, but there's there. I think there's a, a spiritual part to it, too, where, um, you know, and, and maybe that's part of like people feeling rejected from the church and not having that sense of community and that sense of belonging, you know, can attribute to that, too. But um, so when somebody comes to you, like it is the treatment you know, ongoing and who pays for it? Um, you know, is it? Yeah, I, I say it's, it's, you know, again, like anything else, if somebody came to me and says, I have diabetes, you know, it's, you know, is I say some, yeah, there's some people who come to me and they have diabetes and um, they become vegan and start running ultra marathons and they lose a bunch of weight and they no longer need to be actively treated for diabetes. But there's other people where they just need to be on it for their entire life. And that's just that's just the way it is. And um, it's exactly the same thing with substance use disorder um, in the state of Michigan. It's, you know, the medications and everything are paid for by insurance. Um, there was a big law that uh, was passed at the beginning of this year that made. So you used to have a what we refer to as an X waiver um, to provide certain medications and so you could only get it from certain providers. That's gone. The problem is there's so much stigma around people who have substance use disorder. There's a lot of doctors who still won't prescribe the medications, medications that usually buprenorphine, uh, which is Suboxone, um, Subutex, for people who have an opiate use disorder. But yeah, so most people are on, uh, are on these medications for life. And again, that's the same way with you know, somebody who has started on metformin or insulin for diabetes. Most people are just on it for the rest of their life. Um, but it totally depends on the person. Um, and I say that there's, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of have multiple different people in my clinic and there's certain people who are, you pass them on the street and they've been sober for years and they're part of my program. And, you know, they're people that your school teachers your pastors, your social workers, people that you wouldn't know. And then there's people that are basically, you know, just kind of still living in kind of the substance use disorder world. And we're giving them medications just to make sure they don't die, make sure they don't have an overdose with the hope that they would, you will know, someday get to the point of, of being, of being somebody who is not, not actively living in that substance use disorder world. Um, somebody who can more actively uh, respond to their, um, more actively participate in their recovery. So it mm -hmm. depends on the person and it depends on the substance and it depends on what resources the person has and, you know, whether they have family around them, all that stuff. So that's a very complicated, very multifaceted, um, multifaceted thing, but yeah, it depends on the person. So, um, so the medications that you have to prescribe help to reduce the cravings or what do they actually do? 
Yeah. So buprenorphine, which is primarily what you use for opiate use disorder, um, is and that's what we can do in like what we'll, we'll, we're we're to use OBOT, which is office based opioid treatment or office based opioid use treatment, and that those are that's going to be buprenorphine, which basically does two things. So it does it binds to the opiate receptors in a way that um, theoretically doesn't get people high. Now people will there are some people who do figure out ways to get high on things and. And, but in general, it doesn't make somebody high, but what it does is it stops cravings for opioids and it stops any physiologic detoxification withdrawal symptoms, uh, you know, diarrhea, um, abdominal pain, cramping, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And just kind of allows people to feel normal and just feel like they don't need to be out looking for drugs. But then what it also does is it has a very, very high affinity for the opioid receptors so that let's say you are, you have a history of opioid use disorder, you're taking Suboxone and you just have a really bad day and you say, screw it, I'm going to go relapse. And you get some pills from, from some friends and you take them or you inject them or all that stuff. The buprenorphine has such a high affinity that the other opioids that you're taking don't really do anything. And so you can't just say, oh, screw it, I'm going to get high and then get high. But that has a secondary benefit in that, in that let's say you buy some pills from somebody and if not, they say, oh, this is oxy and it's actually a pressed fentanyl pill from Mexico or wherever. Um, and you take it where you would typically just die of an overdose because fentanyl is incredibly potent and you think you're just taking oxy, but you're taking something way more powerful. You actually don't overdose. You just are fine. Mm -hmm. And so the benefit of that is, is that it keeps people alive, right? And so the longer that people stay alive, the more likely they are to actually have, have times of sobriety and actually recover. So, so buprenorphine is, is that that's the number one, the most common thing. The other thing is Vivitrol, which is we use for, for both alcohol use disorder and, and uh, alcohol use disorders, Vivitrol, uh, and which is an injection or, or there's the naltrexone, which is the oral medication. Um, but then there's also, there's also methadone, which you have to be at an actual opioid treatment program. So, so that's the place where you have to go daily, get methadone. So you, right now you have to be in a special program to do that. So I can't do that in my office. Um, but those are kind of the main medications I use. Um, naltrexone or Vivitrol works to block the opioid receptors so that when you take an opioid, you don't get, you don't get, have any effects. The problem is that it's not protective against an overdose. So let's say you have a bad day and you say, I'm going to go use because that's what people with an opioid use disorder do is when they have a bad day they use, it might not protect against an overdose. So that's why we use, you know, the buprenorphine or the methadone because they do that double, kind of the double duty of, of you know, of, of binding to the, to the opioid receptors, but then they also will prevent people from dying. So we're running low on time here, but I just um, was wondering if you had just some words uh, of advice 
for someone who has a family member, um, what -hmm. would you say for them to do if they were trying to get them help? Yeah, I would say I would say do some research and see what is available in your area. Um, and you'll try to find a provider, whether it's a nurse practitioner, doctor, PA, somebody who does a lot of work with substance use disorder, um, is somebody who has compassion and understands the medications. That's a really good place to start because they should know what kind of resources are in the area. They should know what they have around. And again, it can be difficult to find that person, but I, you know it, that's that's probably the first best thing that can be really beneficial. And one last question: um, yep. What if someone doesn't want to get help? Uh, then it's a great question. Um, if they don't want help, then just love them as best you can. There are some instances in which people can get help when they don't want help, such as like drug courts and stuff like that. But that's really not your job as a family member. Your job as a family member and a loved one is not to be a police officer. It's not to be a nurse. It's not to be a doctor. Obviously, if the person is doing something that is putting somebody at danger, then you need to either get out of the situation, call CPS, do the things to make sure that you are you or young ones are not in danger. But if somebody doesn't want help, then you, you kind of just have to let them be. And so that's that's kind of one of the biggest challenges. And that's kind of where that that question about, you know, about, you know, staying with somebody who has a substance use disorder, that kind of stuff is one of the big questions is, do they want help? Do they want to get better? And if if somebody wants to get help, then great. If not, then you just kind of have to let them be and just kind of hope and pray that 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 will change. And and that's that's a huge, huge question. But that's the biggest one of the biggest things you can do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's that that uh, walking away and loving from afar that that can be the most difficult. And, you know, because as uh, somebody, you know, who's been in that situation, you you want to help. You want to you want to control that person in a way and, and make mm-hmm. them get the help. Come on. You got to like right. snap out of it. Um, but at the at the end of the day, they have to want it and they have to do the work to um, stay sober. It, and that's where that that, you know, the, the Al-Anon, a lot of people can actually switch back and forth between being the addict and being the person who loves an addict very quickly because it's very easy to become addicted to trying to love and trying to help somebody when it might not be the most helpful thing. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Um, our video time is running short here, so um, I'm going to cut this this down. And um, thank you so much for your time. You're, you Definitely. have a wealth of knowledge, and it's been so enlightening to talk to you. And God bless you and what you do. And that's, that's a tough, tough uh, specialty to be in. But what you do is so important, and it's such a needed um, needed resource for so many people. Seriously, what you do is just amazing. Like I just, I could not do that. Coming from somebody on the other side and and I'm taking care of people that are coming down off Mm -hmm. and stuff and holy cow, Mm -hmm. it is just, it's rough. Yeah. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why like I'm pretty good at it is even though I, you know, I, you know, Keith is probably like the closest family member. There's other stuff, but it's like, I kind of, I don't have that. I haven't been directly hurt by somebody with it. And so it's kind of, 
it's kind of easier for me to hold that at arm's length, right? I think it would be much more difficult if it was something that I had personally wrestled with, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really does make it challenging and it makes it hard for me to be objective a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And when I have people come in and I have to be like, okay, I just got to take a deep breath and, right. you know, know that I'm supposed to love this person right. and, and be a right. help to them. That's my position now. It's not for me yeah. to try to hear them or make them yeah. help. Um, but Definitely. I have people come in that, that are like, you know, oh, I just quit cold turkey yesterday and right. I'm just, you got to go to the emergency room. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's oh, crazy. So, yeah. So, love you, Mike. Thank you love so you much. Too. Yeah, anytime. I love talking about this. So, all right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Nice chat with you. And uh, congrats again on, uh, on oh. the recent nuptials. Yes. Thank you. Hey, before you go, make sure you click and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also, make sure you go over to our Facebook group, Unstoppable Joy, your roadmap to a joy filled life, where you can find other like minded individuals who are also on their journey to finding a life of unstoppable joy. Click the link below or in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Be blessed.